0: <clears throat> Hello. Hello, Howard. Hello, you? Victoria. Science how are you? <laughs> Great. am uh, glad to see you here. Yep. Uh,
1: how is the audio?
0: The audio is fabulous.
2: Okay. Very
0: good. I'm just... Um... Calling Katarina in here and some other people. You are the early bird. Mm -hmm. How's your day going?
1: Uh, pretty good. Um, Where are you in the world? Are you East Coast or something else?
0: I'm right now in Oregon.
1: Oh, very good. Mm -hmm. So my day is on the uh, on the closer to the end, I should say. You know, so we're you know wrapping up stuff.
0: So you're on the East Coast, perhaps? Yep. Mm-hmm. Any exciting weather? I hope you're not bracing for a hurricane or anything.
1: No, it's gorgeous outside right now. Um, it's gotten cooler. We've uh, hit, you know hit autumn officially, and uh, we had you know uh, the warmer weather maybe like two weeks ago, and then it was like a, a switch, and then bam, now it's cooler.
0: yeah that happened here we just got our first rain um first of many <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but it's okay because that's why it's so pretty and it, you know keeps the slugs happy
1: mm-hmm. are you uh whereabouts in uh, oregon are you uh,
0: hi hi hi, yeah. Howard. hi victoria oh, hi so how
3: Sorry that I was kind of late. I wanted to be five minutes earlier, but I'm
0: a minute late. We so we didn't even we didn't even mention it. We <laughs> knew you, you were. Way. But Howard, do you mind clicking on our our um, biopics here, and sure. then when you see make moderator. Do you mind doing that? Oh
1: Please? sure, yeah. No then
0: problem. then we have the magic powers, so that you don't have to worry about running the room. Yay, well done. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Howard. No
1: problem. How are you? <laughs> good. How are you?
3: I'm good, good. Thank you. Uh, thanks for opening the room and everything. I will pin up, uh, put the um, link on top of the room to the paper, unless you want to start with um, maybe your lab website. I also have it ready.
1: Um, sure, it's up to you. Um,
3: okay, you then know, let's the, do it doing that
1: uh, that has a nice picture.
3: Perfect. Can everyone see it?
1: Yeah.
3: Oh, usually there's the picture on the left side, but somehow it's not. I wish we could see that. Right? Yeah, it would be so nice. Let me also put it in the chat so people have later access to it.
0: And the paper, what is the photo that we're not seeing?
1: Um, I guess it depends on if there is a logo for the website, like, a like a Famicom, maybe it shows up, but, but if you click on it, let's see, we got plenty of photos.
3: So, uh, yeah, welcome everyone. Hi, Einar, hi, Soil, hi, Manas. Um Feel free to raise your hands, come up to the stage, participate, and then if you if you think this is interesting, um, please feel free to also share the room. And, um, yeah, we'll start on top of the hour. So, a minute left for me to share it on Twitter, <laughs> sorry.
0: Right, it's that housekeeping that we're not able to do until we're actually here in the room.
1: Okay, um,
3: yeah, I think we can slowly start and people will um, continue coming in. Um, but since we start with the introduction for a little bit, I think we can we can go ahead, uh, the recording, having the recording in mind, because, you know, we have friends all over the world and there's never a time that works for everyone, so. Um, people will have the recording so welcome everyone to science society and of course a special welcome to you Howard Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and speak about your really interesting research and everyone if you're interested to learn some more um, we uh, on top of the room the setup website uh, there you can find more resources about uh, different uh, Publications and also lab members and what the lab is about uh, So feel free to check it out. Um, it's a really cool pretty website <laughs> That sadly the picture doesn't show and uh, before we start let me give you uh, some Information about our guest speaker, Dr. Howard Salis. He's an associate professor of biological and chemical engineering, and synthetic biology. Um, at um, and his um areas of um, expertise or the areas he is working on in his lab is synthetic biology, metabolic engineering, biophysics, molecular biology, and biochemistry, modeling, and optimization. And um, Dr. Salas, he did his um, bachelor in science in chemical engineering at Rutgers University, and then his PhD um, at the University of Minnesota in chemical engineering, and um, he then uh, did his a postdoctoral research. At the University of California in San Francisco, in the Voigt Lab, and he's also the founder of De novo DNA, who is a spin-off company from um, the Salis Lab at Penn State University. Um, that's really interesting, for sure. We would like to hear also about your company, um, if you have time. And now he is, as I said, an associate professor. Um, at Penn State University. And um, he won different uh, honors and awards, including the NSF Career Award and the DARPA Young Faculty Award. Um, And so, yeah, we are very honored to having you here. And usually Victoria asks like a couple of interview questions, so people get to know you a little bit better. So yeah, thank you, Hart.
1: Uh, thank you very much for the invitation to speak with you all today.
0: Thank you, Katharina. Howard Science Society is so happy to welcome you here. And that was really exciting hearing about all the cool bio things that you've been up to in your life. And it would also be great to hear a little bit about your background as we um, prepare to hear about your talk, because Science Society is all about people exploring knowledge together. So we, we appreciate knowing about the, the person who's about to present. So my question mm-hmm. is, if you can tell us, if you think back in your lifetime, when, if there was such a time that you noticed a spark that, that made you feel like you had an affinity for science? And that could be any time in your life little bitty time or more recent
1: sure um i guess i would say that uh from a very early age i was always uh i always kind of knew that i wanted to go into uh r d research and development in fact my my mo- my mom would always say oh you were talking about this when i was in uh, elementary school let's say um and, and so and my father is an engineer my mother is a nurse so you know, both of them were very much uh, um, encouraging of going into the the sciences and engineering, and uh, and so uh, from a very you know young age, I was exposed to you know computers, uh, and I uh, got to uh, program computers, and uh, you know I, I learned several languages. I uh, was also you know very immensely interested in biology and microbiology uh, during high school and and so when i entered college i basically wanted to combine those two passions so computers and biology right
0: thank you it's it's really interesting to notice that you can take what you've what your your previous interests were and then combine them maybe into something, into a new field of, of study or research. And, and so perhaps can you bring us from the point that um, when you entered college and you were interested in microbiology and other bio fields, can you bring us up to the point where you're now at your current research, maybe some, some of the larger events that, that happened Something to bring sure, along can. the journey. Thank you.
1: So um, maybe my my second week of being an undergraduate student at Rutgers University, I uh, walked into a tissue engineering lab. Uh, so this is you know circa uh, 1994 uh, when tissue engineering as a field was uh, just beginning, and uh, I walked into uh, the, the you know a faculty lab. And I basically, you know, as a freshman, I said, "I'll do anything. I will take out the garbage, uh, if you want me to. Um, but I want to, you know, work in your lab." And so uh, he looked at me, uh, and he said, alright I'm going to put you to work." And so I was uh, trained uh, quite a bit with uh, tissue culture. So for for those in the in the in the clubhouse room who know. Um, You know, be very detail oriented. Very, you know, very careful about your movements whenever you do tissue culture. And uh, we were working with uh, epithelial uh, skin cells, and so they are they are uh, adherent. And so there's lots of extra steps uh, to culturing and subculturing and basically babysitting uh, those cells. And so, um, so you know, as a young student, I got into the rhythm of doing research. and 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 really, you know, scheduling in, in into your, you know, into my curriculum that I would be in the lab uh, at this time, at uh, this day, and I would, you know, be assisting a graduate student uh, on their project. Um, and then, of course, you know, as you know, I, I got older, I wanted to work on my own projects and I had in my mind the types of projects that I wanted to work on were really more towards um, this idea that, um, you know, we, as engineers, we, we design things on a computer and then we build them in real life. So we, we design, you know, cars on a computer, we design bridges and trains and planes on a computer, you know, chemical factories on a computer. But we don't, as you know, particularly at the time, we never designed organisms on a computer. That was still, you know, science fiction. And I wanted to make that a reality. I wanted to sit down at a computer and design an organism from the bottom up and, and then go into the lab and build that organism and you know write out its DNA sequence, physically construct that DNA sequence, put the DNA into the organism. I wanted to make that happen. And I wanted my uh, model predictions to be so accurate that we could create a whole new engineering discipline around organism engineering. So from a pretty young age, I was like, you know, why isn't this a thing yet? You know, and why can't we do this? Um, And so I wanted to, you know, so my roundabout way of doing that was to get more involved on the computational side and become more of an expert in computational modeling. I worked in a fluid mechanics lab that had nothing to do with biology, but uh, they worked on very complicated uh, fluid flow systems. And I did experiments actually testing those predictions. Um, and I worked, uh, in an, I took all sorts of courses in nonlinear dynamics and chaos, uh, and got very interested in all the different types of modeling that one can do. Um, and then in graduate school, um, I got very involved in what are called stochastic models. So this is where, uh, probability theory and, uh, comes into play, uh, which is important for biology because when cells, you know, cells are very small, and the number of molecules inside of a cell is also very small, you know, uh, compared to a mole of molecules. And so, when you actually go to write down equations for describing what is happening inside of a cell, well, you're not dealing with a deterministic system anymore, you're now dealing with probability theory, you know, the cell is effectively rolling the dice on how often, let's say, a transcription factor binds to a DNA site and how often transcription takes place and so on. And because it's you know constantly rolling of the dice, you, you can now have multiple things that are possible. So multiple different trajectories of your system are, are possible. And that actually has a big impact on how cells work. And so from a fundamental basis, if we want to make predictions about biology, they can't just be the same type of predictions that one would use, let's say for, a mechanical system with very large moving parts. They, the, the types of equations that we need to use to make predictions about biology have to be at the at the molecular level, taking into account probability theory because everything is so small. And so I got really into that um, and during graduate school. And it got very detailed, very in-depth in terms of um, how do you write out uh, the equations? How do you solve these equations? Uh, on supercomputers to make predictions about biology and genetic circuits and genetic circuit uh, regulation. And um, and and then, you know, let's say I had my own little existential crisis um, near the end of my graduate school, because even though at the time, even though we were making lots of predictions about what was happening, we didn't yet have, let's say, the tools or the throughput, to test all those predictions. And we couldn't still make predictions in the same way that we could with other types of systems. So in terms of like accuracy. Uh, And so during my postdoc, I basically wanted to solve that problem. I wanted to uh, try to like connect these two worlds. Like, you know, before, again, circa 2008, 2007, there was the systems biology world, Everybody was very much interested in writing out equations and solving them, making sense of systems. Uh, then there was the genetic engineering world where people were cutting and pasting DNA and trying to get a, a, a small genetic circuit or, or pathway to work. Um, I wanted to like combine these two fields uh, together and be able to make predictions, but not just make any prediction. I wanted to be able to predict the specific DNA sequences that we should be introducing into an organism to make that organism do something that we wanted. And that's a conceptual leap because before, again, you know, in the old days, we were just dealing with equations and numbers and making predictions about what the system would do. But now I wanted to go from DNA sequences to equations and numbers and predictions. And I also wanted to go from backwards. I wanted to go back from, you know, uh, functions of interest, to you know, through equations and numbers, but ultimately designing DNA sequences. And so, conceptually, going from sequences to numbers and numbers to sequences back, that was that's you know pretty difficult to do, uh, because you know a DNA sequence is a string of letters, but that string of letters. Controls gene expression through a whole, you know, compendium of different molecular interactions, and so in order to go from sequences to numbers and then from numbers back to sequences, we need to really understand at a very quantitative and predictive fashion. We need to understand how the sequences control all the things that can affect function, so the sequence function relationship, and um, and the way that I went about doing that understanding that relationship is to understand the biophysics taking place. Uh, And so during my postdoc, we developed um, the very first algorithm in a model that could take in any sequence and make a a, a strong prediction uh, about what the function of that sequence is on gene expression. So this was the uh, ribosome binding site calculator. You can input in any messenger RNA sequence and it would predict translation initiation rates from that sequence. And you can go backwards, you can go, you could say, all right, I want a sequence that gives you a translation initiation rate of let's say 10,000 on a proportional scale. And you would enter in a number 10,000 into the algorithm and it would then go through a series of calculations and design for you a messenger RNA sequence that would give you that number. So again, sequence to numbers and then numbers back to sequence and with that capability it really unlocks you know uh synthetic biology as an engineering discipline so you're not just cutting and pasting dna you're not just copying you're not just moving parts around you are making predictions and you care and you're carrying out rational design uh do we have any questions so far Well,
0: Howard, that was an amazing. That was that was like um, you know like listening to a sci-fi story. You're a really great storyteller, by the way. I'm (laughs) sure everyone is thinking about this too because you really carried us along through this whole process. And and then yes, and then you are developing a new discipline. And and um, yeah, I I want to hear the rest of what you have to say. So so yeah, please. um, At this point, I just want to hand you the mic forever and ever and um, and then and then you have your PDF there that you can lead us through and or I guess your um, your website and then if you'd like to have Q&A at the end of your discussion or have a, you know Q&A driving your discussion that's completely up to you and then I see you've already visited the room chat um, and so uh, people may put questions or comments in there and you're also welcome to um, put or ask us to put a link in there that, you know, if something comes to mind. So, um, but we're here to moderate the room for you. And thank you so much. And so at this point, the mic is yours. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Well, I, I you know,
1: it's always, you know, I'm a, I'm a faculty, I teach courses. I always like to get uh, feedback from the audience about what is it that they care about, you know, because of course I can go on for a very long time. About our work and, and particularly this uh, most recent work, um, but I want to hear from the audience if they're so willing to to tell, you know to, to speak up. That uh, what do they care about? You know what you know what areas of uh you know what topical areas of science are they interested in and what how you know there's quite a lot of intersections. So for example, our work helps a lot of people. By enabling people to design and control gene expression for all sorts of different biotech applications, Um, and we collaborate quite a bit uh, through, uh, you know, partly through our company uh, to help people uh, and enable them to pursue those biotech applications. Um, But I want to hear from the audience about what they're interested in before I can, you know, I go off on my own tangent.
3: Yeah, thank you so much, Howard. And Dennis, and so here you joined the stage. So if you want to comment or ask something, please go ahead.
2: Thank you, Katerina. Thank you, Howard. Um, I would I'd be very interested to understand the implications of your work for the situation of COVID.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, here's one example. When people are developing uh, the COVID vaccine, it's a mRNA vaccine. It's produced inside what is called an in vitro transcription assay. Um, Our model predictions can help people make sure that when they uh, encode the mRNA vaccine, not just the vaccine itself, but the genetic parts that are being used to produce the vaccine, that those genetic parts uh, have you know here a, a high transcription rate uh, producing a lot of the mRNA vaccine, and also at the same time, the system is not producing other types of RNA that is undesired. okay so so in that regard, it's like uh, you know if, if you think about computational design and uh, for for organism engineering, our models and algorithms allow people to carry out their desired function or desired activity while not having to worry too much about the nitty-gritty details so you can get a little bit you know you can you know we we've done you know we've we've taken that effort we've done all the experiments to develop these uh, models and validate them so that other people when they want to go work on a particular application They don't need to, you know, take into account the 30 something, whatever different interactions that are uh, important. our model is calculating the strengths of those interactions and reporting them to the user. And so they can just see what what is happening uh, and they know ahead of time what is going to happen.
2: Thank you. (laughs) Who would like to go next? Uh, May I ask, is it my turn? Sure. Uh, Yeah, thank you. Um, So, in my understanding, uh, problems such as uh, protein folding, uh, they're hard computational problems. So, is it that, um, do you have like a solution to have a kind of solve them or is it an approximation or... Or maybe you don't even, uh, you, or do you um, actually kind of plan to actually create them in reality? Uh, is it just for um, later on moving on to uh, implement them using the DNAs or not? And then uh, another, my third question, which is actually my main question, is how much these uh, genes and interactions and what uh, a design mRNA does is computable in principle. So how much are we in our with uh, us humans, with our computational um, uh, tools and understandings of biochemistry, etc? How can we, in principle, predict what uh, a genome does if we have a sequence, thank you.
1: Very good question. So I'll, I'll uh, answer the first one first. Uh, so, so my best analogy, uh, cause, cause you brought up protein folding. So th- think about uh, a car and all of the different parts in a car. So, you know, you can be uh, an expert on just the engine you can just design engines and you can just uh, tune that engine to get the, the best uh, gas mileage, let's say, uh, or a hybrid. Uh, uh, but that engine is just one component in the whole automobile. And so when you go to actually design the whole car on a computer, you're really uh, you know, taking into account all the different systems and subsystems, how they all interact, how they all uh, you know, connect to one another. And so the the way the way to view what my lab does is that a lot of what an organism does is not just one part. It's actually like a hundred different parts all working together. And that's just for one engineered function that we're adding into the organism. If you were to look at all the functions that the organism does, you know, we're talking about, you know, thousands of parts all working together. So, if we if we start off with an organism, we say, "All right, we want to add, we want to augment that organism with a new capability." That could mean adding in 20 different proteins. And those 20 proteins could originate from many other different organisms. So, these are like, you know, recombinant or heterologous proteins that we are introducing into this organism. And then on top of that, we're adding in a whole bunch of new genetic parts to control the expression or production rate of these proteins inside the organism. And that control might be, you know, it could be always on. So these proteins might always be produced under a particular condition, or we might want to turn the production of these proteins on or off or tune the production rate, like a a dial, according to different conditions. And that can become important depending upon the application. Like for example, let's say you want to feed the organism some uh, low-cost feedstock. uh, Let's say like carbon dioxide, and you then correspondingly want to produce a higher-value product uh, that uh, is, you know, needed by you know human civilization. Let's say uh, a habit of plastic, a plastic monomer. Um, And so you are engineering that organism to convert the CO2 into the plastic monomer. But in order to do that, you know, we're introducing in, you know, those 20 different enzymes, you know, which is a type of protein. And we're introducing in all those genetic parts for controlling the production rates of those enzymes to make that conversion possible. So that is the type of organism engineering that uh, we specialize in because it's we don't focus necessarily on just the one protein. Uh, we, you know, look at the whole system, and we engineer the whole system to uh, maximize the the function of the organism. So, in in the case of the CO two to plastic monomer, we don't want to produce we want to produce the most amount of that plastic monomer as possible, uh, not just a little bit. Um, and then to your second question. Um, how much, you know, how many, how general uh, are our predictions, that is, um, how good are we, how, what is the state of the art? So the state of the art in in our field is that for, let's say for bacteria, which are simpler, uh, we can input in the the sequence of that bacteria, the, the genome, and we can predict the transcription initiation rates, the translation rates and the messenger RNA decay rates, and we can predict some other characteristics of the sequence, like, uh, uh, you know, the, its copy number, depending upon where it is uh, in the genome. And we can combine all those predictions together to get a pretty good prediction for how much protein is being produced, like straight just from the sequence. And then on top of that, we, we can make even better predictions, about what happens if we make a like a a modification to the sequence. So we know ahead of time that if we change, let's say this G to a C, or this A to a T at the DNA level, we know ahead of time that the transcription rate might increase by a factor of two, or the translation rate might decrease by a factor of five. And it's actually easier to make those types of differential predictions because you're starting with some sequence and then all we need to do is predict the change in interactions when we make a modification. And so the state of the art is we're really good at predicting how a change in the sequence will affect the organism's function for bacteria. And that ability really drives uh, the development of all these different biotech applications, because we can't always, you know, when you're engineering these organisms, it's kind of like throwing uh, darts at a board. And, you know, if we were if we're able to throw a dart and hit the bullseye on the very first try, I mean, that would be awesome, but we're not there yet. But, you know, right now the state of the art is that we can throw, you know, 20 darts for a simple system or a hundred darts for a more complicated system. And we can, of course, throw those darts at the bullseye and try to hit the bullseye but and we're going to get very close um and you know through experimentation we'll figure out you know how close we got to the bullseye but with the model predictions and our design algorithms we know ahead of time that if we throw a small number of darts we're going to hit very close to the bullseye and get the job done so that that is the state of the art right now
4: Next question. May I ask the next question? Sure. Okay. Uh, so I understand that, that you have this whole system. It's like you have so many promoters you're looking at and you give a whole like output. For example, if I'm only focusing on one particular, let's say on a polymerase and I want to make changes. So your system would give some evaluation, say, oh, let's say, I'm going to do that, um, I don't know, amino acids like 350. And uh, would that be a better, like changes versus uh, like um, another location, amino acids, let's say promoters, or maybe let's say three-time three UTRs. So that's, so you give, so if I ask you, please look at this, I'm working on this molecule, how am I going to do? I want the output of a particular protein to be like a two times or five times more than normal. So that your system can help in am I understanding is it in this way or am I going there not quite the the
1: oh, way you're doing it? Yeah. Yep, you're you are on the right track. Let me uh you 'cause you brought up the paper. Why don't I just give a, a five minute overview Yes, please, of the paper. please. No. Yes,
4: I, wasn't thinking, uh, I was
1: thinking. Okay. Um no you know, sometimes, you know, you don't know some audiences are more interested in transcription versus others. So I didn't want to just jump into the paper, but now it's a good time. Um, so, okay, so so this paper, which appeared in Nature Communications uh, in September, uh, our, our mission for this paper is to be able to enter any DNA sequence into our model and make a really good prediction about the transcription initiation rate for every possible start site in that DNA sequence. And to be clear, this is uh, in bacteria, and we carried out this model development and validation for what is called the uh, sigma-70 factor, which is the housekeeping sigma factor uh, in in E. coli. Uh, And and this this is important because the sigma-70 factor is the most predominant and most used sigma factor uh, for transcription initiation. So the way that we developed this uh, predictive model is we designed 14,206 promoter sequences. We constructed all of those promoter sequences, so physically, and then we characterized and measured the transcription initiation rates from all of those promoter sequences, all in one experiment. And then we, of course, repeated that experiment, you know, uh, in triplicate uh, to get, you know, great data. And we also carried out what is called transcriptional start site mapping on all of these different fourteen thousand two hundred and six promoters to figure out exactly where transcription initiated on these DNA sequences. And so that's the data that we collected, uh, and then we utilized all of that data. To then parameterize a predictive biophysical model of transcriptional initiation, that then allows us to make these predictions moving forward. And um, so, the, the 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 sequence space that we're talking about here is you know quite large. A a a core promoter sequence in bacteria is on the order of you know uh, some people would say sixty base pairs we would say it's actually quite you know, longer, uh, 80, 85 base pairs. Uh, and so if you look at the sequence base, it's four to the 80, okay? So that's already um, an astronomical number of different DNA sequences. But that's what we are, you know, th- that's that's the challenge. We want to make a prediction about what the transcription initiation rate will be given any possible 80 base pair DNA sequence, and then we actually show that you can take that model and scan it, use it to scan across a a very long DNA sequence, like a whole genome, and make predictions, you know, accurate predictions across uh, the very long DNA sequence, okay? Um, And so in that first step, the way that we designed those 14,206 different promoters, it wasn't random. We first started off by reading a whole bunch of papers about what controls transcription initiation, uh, you know, from sigma seventy promoters. We then designed you know, systematically designed sequences to perturb those interactions, and then we, you know, uh, combined all of those sequences together. It's not a co- it's not a combinatorial space that would be too large. It's a uh, systematically uh, designed set of sequences. To perturb the, the individual interactions so that we can precisely measure the change in interaction strength with respect to sequence change. Okay. And then again, the way that we uh, so we, we, we do DNA-seq and RNA-seq, uh, which is a, a way of using next generation sequencing to measure uh, mRNA levels uh, in this assay. Um, and in particular uh, we set up these assays to be fully in vitro. That is, there's only four ingredients in our assays. There's RNA polymerase and sigma 70. There's the library of 14,000, uh, different promoter sequences. There's the NTPs, you know, the fuel for transcription. And then there's the buffer in the water. And because there's only those four ingredients in our assay, we know that our sequences are not going to affect uh, other interactions like, for example, mRNA decay um, or transcription factor binding. Uh, And so when we carry out these measurements, we know definitively that the the differences in sequence that we introduced will only have an effect on the RNA polymerase sigma-70s binding to these promoter sequences and so that definitiveness means that our data is really good data that we can then use to create a really good model and you know in the modeling world some people just want to collect a whole bunch of data and they think that after the fact they're going to create a really good model it doesn't actually work like that you need to collect really good data to generate and validate a really good model and so we spent a long time making sure that the sequences that we designed are perturbing all these interactions and the assay itself was set up so that we were only measuring the thing that we wanted to measure, and other interactions were just not present and therefore could not confound our measurement. Um, and so if you go through the paper, it talks a bit about this, but at the end of the day, um, the, the the key benefit of our work is that you can go to one of our tables and you can look at the uh, moti- the DNA motifs, and it shows you the interaction energies for each of the DNA motifs, okay? Which means that uh, it's a fully human understandable model. You can look at this table and you can see what makes a promoter bind to RNA polymerase and Sigma 70. You can look at this table and do a comparison across different motifs, and you can actually use the table without a computer and you can design your own promoter. It's that understandable. okay? Uh, it's like the opposite of all of these different like black box machine learning models where you know you might train the model and test the model and all that, but you actually don't understand what's inside the model. Here, We do use machine learning, uh, but we use it in a way where the output is completely understandable by humans. And you don't need to use machine learning afterwards to make the predictions, okay? And I think that's an an important distinction because um, having been in the field for a long enough period of time and seen lots of different machine learning models that have been developed, A machine learning model might get a great prediction for a particular data set, but then as people, you know, use that machine learning model in a different context, a different system, it basically often, not all the time, but very often does not give a great prediction. That is the, a black box machine learning model is often really just so special, specialized for a particular uh, system. Uh, and you can extrapolate. But here in our system, the way that we've set up uh, the data analysis and the machine learning, the output uh, of what we're generating is something that generalizes uh, across uh, any possible DNA sequence in bacteria uh, for sigma 70, and allows you to make uh, accurate predictions across the whole sequence space. And it's something that is human understandable. You know, exactly uh, what the calculation is and what you get out of it. Okay. And so at the end of the day, what does that mean? It means you can go to our website, you can copy paste in a DNA sequence. The model runs, it scans across and it predicts a transcription initiation rate for every uh, position in that DNA sequence, and it will tell you how, you know, how strong your promoter is, but it also tell you, for example, how many alternative promoters or cryptic promoters there are in your system. And that's important because when we think of a DNA sequence as, you know, being a really strong promoter, oftentimes it's actually not one transcriptional start site. It's actually multiple transcriptional start sites that each bind Separately and distinctly to different copies of RNA polymerase, and give you a lot of messenger RNA. But it, you know, it's not just one promoter. It could actually be multiple promoters combined together. And it, you know, we're now understanding a lot more about how uh, natural systems work and how we can engineer new systems with these model predictions, because. The, the details that are being calculated and reported to you uh, are now very fine and tell you quite a bit about what is happening at the molecular level. Um, okay, so I think that's a great stopping point for a question.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, I know, did you want to go? Go ahead.
2: Yeah, please. Thank you very much, uh, Katharina. Um So, um, if I get this right, uh, the RNA will affect the DNA um, and also then on go to the epigenetic part of the body. Um, is there any. Related research or science when it comes to what kind of um, what you put into your body or what you are being exposed to by uh, the environment, which actually affects uh, the epigenetic part of the time for when this will change the DNA. Um, Yeah.
1: Okay. So, a uh, good question. So let me give you an example of how our models and algorithms are being used, uh, to treat human disease. So, uh, there, are, uh, and again, you know, um, uh, companies, uh, will use our models and algorithms, uh, for their own biotech applications. Uh, we have quite a few, uh, companies uh, doing that. Uh, one of them just, uh, just a good example, uh, is named uh, Synlogic. Uh, and they engineer probiotic bacteria, and so these are uh, you know harmless bacteria that normally live in the human gut. Uh, one of them is called uh, E. coli uh, Nissle nineteen seventeen. It was isolated in nineteen seventeen, and they've engineered uh, this E. coli Nissle nineteen seventeen to treat different types of metabolic diseases, and uh, these diseases occur when a person doesn't naturally produce enough enzyme to break down a metabolite and that metabolite then can actually accumulate in your blood to toxic levels. So in the past, if somebody had one of these metabolic diseases and there's, there's quite a few of these, uh, specific to the metabolite, but I'm not going to go into the detail there. Um, but like, let's say, uh, there's one of them where, uh, you, you can't, um, you can't eat enough like uh, threonine uh, or or lysine. So basically if you were to eat a food that had too much of these amino acids, um, the amino acid would actually accumulate in your blood at a toxic level and it would harm your liver. And so in the past, the, the treatment for this disease would be simply to eat foods that didn't have these amino acids. Uh, or at least not at a, at a plentiful level, uh, which is very restrictive. But now uh, the, uh, Synlogic has engineered a, a couple of these different uh, probiotic bacteria that express an enzyme that breaks down the metabolite inside of the human gut so that it doesn't accumulate to a toxic level. And uh, you know, one way that they use our algorithms is to produce a lot of the enzyme in the gut so that it the organism is doing its job you know correctly and you might imagine that you know so so from a treatment point of view what does a person do they take a pill inside the pill they're you know like any probiotic uh you know supplement uh, there is an engineered bacteria in the pill and uh, the engineered bacteria you know goes down into your gut and maybe only you know, 1% of the bacteria in your gut is this one strain of engineered bacteria, you know, E. coli, Nissle 1917. But that 1% of, of engineered bacteria is producing quite a bit of this missing enzyme. And the missing enzyme breaks down the metabolite so it doesn't accumulate and it doesn't harm your liver. Okay. And um, so that is one collection of biotech applications uh, that I think are pretty readily understandable, um, and and how you know synthetic biology uh, is really helping people uh, treat human disease.
3: Yeah, thank you for um, the question and answering the question. Yeah, I. Th- I think this is really fascinating um and you know very helpful especially for rare diseases um with this model that you designed um so are there a lot of um maybe universities or people coming with maybe um, how to solve or treat rare diseases um coming to you, to your company, and that they need help with that?
1: Yes. So um, we have over 10,000 registered users for our website. We, uh, and, and those users have designed uh, over 850,000 different DNA sequences for a whole range of different applications. So the, the software uh, is you know is used quite a bit, um, and it's you know uh, the, many many of those uh, researchers uh, are are from academia, uh, others uh, are from companies, uh, and so we have uh, quite a few companies uh, over well over hundred right now. I'm actually looking up. We have a leaderboard, um, so if you wanted to know which university uses us the most. Uh, it is Harvard university has 90 researchers who have designed 99,782 DNA sequences with our software. Uh, the next one is, uh, uh, Tianjin, uh, in China. The next one after that is Seoul university in, uh, South Korea. The next one after that is MIT, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's very much international. Um, you know, synthetic biology is a global field. Can you hear me? Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, okay. We, um, we, we're having a massive thunderstorm right now. And I think the, you know, uh, reception is, uh, going to be effective, but okay. Um, as long as you can hear me. All right. So, um, you know, it's a global field, um, and, you know, biotechnology is you know you know because it affects us in so many different ways of course it's a it's a a global economic engine um so we we collaborate with quite a few groups working to mitigate climate change to break down plastics we collaborate to again you know engineer probiotic bacteria to express uh, monoclonal antibodies and other recombinant proteins Uh, we collaborate um, quite a bit with um, uh, engineering metabolic pathways to produce uh, specialty chemicals from low-cost feedstocks, so basically uh, sustainable manufacturing. Um, in my own lab, uh, we have, uh, academic lab, uh, we have projects uh, including uh, engineering soil bacteria to detect the presence of explosives in the soil and report on their presence by producing a uh, potent odorant to warn people about the presence of those explosives. Um, and we also have other projects on uh, you know uh, engineering algae uh, to grow faster. Um, and And that's part of a, a, a ambitious plan to sequester a gigaton of carbon uh, per year, uh, which which we can't do alone. We need a whole big uh, large group of uh, people to to help us with, but we are uh, using our algorithms and models. Uh, to make that more of a reality, um, and and then overall, you know, a lot of what we do is uh, enabling. So, when we develop a new model or a new algorithm that uh, carries out, you know, improved predictions or predicts more of what's happening inside the organism, uh, people will immediately start using that new model and new algorithm uh, in their own application. And so, like, we'll develop something. In the lab and test it and put it up on our website. And then, you know, we'll see people immediately start using it. Like our recent paper that I just uh, talked about has already been used to design or predict uh, 22,000 different sequences. And again, the paper's only been published uh, for a a month now, although it was a preprint uh, earlier. Um, And so, our, you know, the benefit of what we do is that um, it immediately starts being used uh because it make it we make it uh, very user friendly um and then you know as, as it happens two to three years later we find out uh what people are using it for and so there's like you know those thousands of applications um uh, you know producing all sorts of different small molecules uh plastic recursors uh, therapeutic candidates uh, uh vitamins nutrients people are using our algorithms to produce all sorts of uh, beneficial compounds.
3: Well, that is very impressive. And um, you really uh, didn't just write in the grant that you will create a new research field to get these grants. You actually did, which (laughs) which is a very big difference. I know we always write that to get those special grants, but um, if we then actually manage to do it, a whole different story. So it's so impressive and so beneficial for humanity, what you have been doing. I'm recently really interested in, um, you know, due to um, company that I work with and um, consult for, for immune responses and stem cell 3D bioprinting. Do you think your model could also predict more things like immune responses or if you maybe change a gene that triggers some immune response, not just what effect it would have to change the genome that way but uh, from a stem cell let's say from a donor but also maybe what the immune response or the reaction of the whole organism would be do you think you can you can we you can use the principle of the model to scale it to a whole organism or complex system like I know it's already a complex system what you're doing but you know what i mean like a a bigger organism or context type let's say you you change the like i'm giving just a few examples to explain it better you change the um, microbiome would you maybe be able with some data to predict what it would do to the person or if you would try to rescue soil after you know major uh forest fires um if you would you know implant microbi- uh, uh microorganisms in the soil again what the outcome would be do, do you think that is something your model could also predict mm.
1: Let me take that first question first. Okay, so you can hear me, right? Uh,
3: yes, yes, thanks.
1: Okay, okay. Um, so um, we, uh, so there, there are techniques for doing immune profiling. Um, and we, we actually have a, so my, my spin off company uh, has developed a, a new uh, gene synthesis technique, which we call uh, massively parallel protein libraries where if you want to express uh, 10,000 different proteins of interest, defined sequences, defined amino acid sequences, we we can now construct for you a library of those 10,000 different protein sequences. uh, And they're all uh, uniquely and individually barcoded with a unique DNA sequence. Um, And then you can do uh, uh, effectively uh, an antigen capture, um, uh, so if you're expressing, well, if you're expressing monoclonal antibodies, you do the antigen capture. If you are trying to figure out uh, which uh, antigen binds to a particular uh, monoclonal or antibody, you can actually express 10,000 plus different antigens and, and then do the uh, antibody capture. So what you, what you can use that technology for is to actually figure out exactly what you said the interactions between our immune system and a particular set of antigens and figure out how mutations affect those interactions. Um, so, so it's not a model because I will say that we don't yet have enough data to make all of those uh, types of predictions that we would need to do for de novo immune profiling. But what we've been able to do with my, with my uh, spinoff company, DeNova DNA, is to substantially like 100X reduce the cost of uh, protein library construction so that you can do those you know, 10,000 plus different experiments all at the same time and collect all the data at the same time for, uh, you know again, 100X less uh, f- fewer dollars, uh, compared to the existing state of the, the state of the art, um, well, so that's something. That, yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah, that's amazing because what the the crucial step is to let's say we can 3D print like complex systems, um, which is a challenge by itself. But um, but sometimes we can, right? Um, so some of them we can. The thing is it's way too expensive to make an organ for every single person, um, a specific one, grow the cells from that person and so on. So what would make it scalable and affordable for the large population is to have off-the-shelf organs. And for that, we would need to know, know, for which cell type, what we have to take away or add type of proteins because sometimes also just adding signals i'm fine you can leave me alone i belong here type of thing that would be hopefully um enough to not have major major um, immune response issues so that would make them the whole industry scalable and probably you're the closest one to be able to predict that to cost cost and able to design that product that off-the-shelf product so that's really exciting
1: yeah so we're, we're um providing this as a, a service through our company um uh, where uh again you pick your favorite ten thousand proteins uh, uh, there's, uh the restriction is 300 amino acids or, or fewer right now um and uh it's constructed in, in a tube and sent right out to you so, um, and the, the pricing is, it varies from uh, uh, $5 per variant at the 10,000 scale, and if you actually, uh, if you ask for fewer proteins, uh, the, the price per variant does go up, because uh, there is a cognitive scale. Um, but okay, so um, other questions. Uh, Kirko.
3: Hey Kyoko, do you wanna ask a question or that you or comment maybe?
0: Yeah, I do actually have a question. Um I was curious, uh, is it possible or do you think like this may be too far fetched that uh this technology could be used to predict um short uh, DNA fragments
2: ability to form like secondary
0: structures? You know, like uh, like say RNA type deal, or um, even just like you know, what I'm saying like hairpins and stuff like that.
1: Absolutely. So um, we we know quite a bit. Uh, collectively, the whole field knows quite a bit about uh, nucleic acid biophysics. So if 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 you like, if you have a single strand of DNA, we can predict how likely it is to form all different types of structures, both secondary structures and even some ter- uh, tertiary structures, like, you know, putting hairpins. Uh, we can do that for DNA, we can do that for RNA, we can do it for DNA-RNA complexes. We can do that for multiple interacting DNA or RNA strands, and there's all these really cool uh, nucleic acid genetic circuits where you can, um, you know, synthesize. Uh, different types of DNA or RNA strands, and then you can add in uh, a new strand and trigger a chain reaction that changes the structures. And so there's all these like types of uh, cool um, input-output circuits that one can build using purely short strands of DNA or RNA as the substrates and uh, regulators. So we, the, the field has gotten pretty sophisticated uh, in that regard. Uh, in in being able to calculate and and make these types of predictions. Um, But of course, that's just DNA or RNA interacting. Um, A lot of what we do is we take those same type of calculations and we then apply them to uh, inside the cell and what what happens when DNA or RNA forms structures inside of a cell and how does that affect gene expression levels, uh, for example, at the transcription rate step or the translation rate step. And I'm getting yeah oh, yep, thanks. And I'm getting some questions in the chat. Um, is it possible to make a library of mouse transcription factors in AV plasmids and a library that enables cloning of different tags? Um, okay, yeah, so we so with this new technique that my spinoff company has developed, you pick your favorite, ten thousand different proteins. right now, fewer, you know, three hundred amino acids or fewer. Uh, define sequences. So it could be any amino acid sequence, um, and we will, you know, construct them and and uh, in vitro and create a plasmid library, and we then send that plasmid library uh, to you, and the, the the it could be whatever vector that you'd like, uh, with, with, within some size restriction, uh, it could be AAV. And the spin-off company is called De Novo DNA. I'll just put it in the
0: chat.
3: Hi, Dr. Cha. I know you just arrived, but um, do you have maybe a comment or question you would like to ask?
5: Hi, Katarina, and yes, I just missed this one. Uh, so yeah, I'm just take a look. If we have time, I'll be back to that. Otherwise, that thank you so much for sharing your research with us.
0: You're very welcome.
3: Yeah. Um, if um, if we have some time in the meantime, um. If you, um, di- so did you have also included in the mechanisms these um, i motif foldings, like can you predict how likely it is that there are this G4 or i motifs or other type of foldings in the DNA under different like environmental factors?
1: Yes, uh, so. We we have a pretty good understanding for what causes an i motif uh, or a g quadruplex or other uh, types of tertiary structures, um, and uh, you know in, in our other work, uh, not not this uh, this paper but uh, in our other work we actually we have actually measured um, how those different motifs uh, affect uh, mRNA decay rates. So we we did find that g quadruplexes have a protective effect on messenger RNA. And prevent them from being degraded uh, inside of cells. Uh, Whereas I motifs seemingly had no effect whatsoever uh, on mRNA decay, they still decayed. Um, So that was interesting. Um, So, uh, you know, we, you know, collectively the field has a pretty good understanding for how a short motif folds into a particular structure. Um, Then, you know, with our work, we try to answer the follow up question of. How does that motif affect gene expression levels? Uh, do you want that motif uh, present in your sequences, or do you not want it uh, because it, it has a negative effect? Um, or, you know, how can we use that motif to tune expression, you know, up or down according to our desired uh, target? Um, and and with our other work, um, you know, if you look on Google Scholar, you can you can read some some you know recent papers. Uh, where we've really figured out the rules for controlling uh, mRNA decay rates as well, um, and some of the rules are you know quite simple, like for example, uh, if you have a large unstructured region of RNA, then it becomes a target for RNase E, uh, and that RNA will then be chopped up at a faster rate. Um, and so if you want a higher mRNA decay rate, uh, then of course you can design your sequences to have large unstructured uh, RNA regions. But of course, if you want to have a really stable messenger RNA, then you design that sequence to actually fold into a structure uh, to prevent RNA from binding. Um, And so a lot of our uh, design rules work together uh, so that when we design the system, we're making predictions for transcription rate, translation rate, mRNA decay rate. And a lot of these uh, predictions are coupled together so that, you know, we, we, you know, when we make those calculations, we, we might make a sequence change in one location that actually influences all three different gene expression, you know, processes at the same time. So, it's important to be able to separately predict the effects uh, of a sequence change uh, on all these different uh, couple processes to to make a really good prediction.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting, and um. Um, would you be able to basically model what it would do to a neuron? Because <laughs> I had this theory that I never got funded for um, that basically eye motifs and so on uh, play a role in um, acute uh, plasticity um, and maybe even long term uh, plasticity in the neuron, like for memory formation basically for short-term maybe. Um, would you be able to predict what the different cell types, how it would change the shape or uh, membrane formation and so on uh, with your model?
1: Well, again, so, um... Think about it this way Um, our models are able to predict sequence function relationships how changing a dna sequence affects gene expression levels at the different steps and those predictions are then used to engineer a whole a large genetic system to carry out a desired functionality and uh, so that capability has been used for uh, engineering microbes for all sorts of applications, whether it is to you know for sustainable biomanufacturing, whether it is to treat human disease by engineering probiotic bacteria, uh, or producing biomaterials to replace um, you, know, uh, you know plastics and materials that came from petrochemicals. So there's a there's a whole economic sector that we are seeking to um, you know advance. Uh, by developing an engineering discipline for organism engineering. So it's uh, being able to engineer these organisms in a very rational, predictive, reliable way uh, means that you can then creatively accomplish quite a lot uh, w- w- without having to worry about, you know, this interaction or that other interaction or the coupling between them. So we're, we you know uh, you know, putting on our engineer hats, we want to get to a point where we can go from Uh, You know stating the problem to designing a solution really quickly on a computer and we know that if we build it It'll just work
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, That's um Yeah, that's really good uh, for So for designing drugs and so on also maybe for um, different type of disorders Um, So, yeah, it's um, really wonderful. No, Dr. Shah, did you have a question?
5: Yes. So my question is about, uh, I mean, because you just mentioned about the benefit of using that. And I was just wondering, for example, for the cancer patient, we are using the liquid biopsy. And uh, we have a measurement of the RNA out of the exosome. And because you just talk about the, I mean, different level with the bacteria, do you think that we can just use it for the, I mean, tumor detection or? Uh, I mean, those kind of cancer development research or not? Uh,
1: so in the area of cancer, uh, there are, there are a lot of natural bacteria that produce chemotherapeutics. In fact, a lot of the chemotherapeutics that we're using right now, uh, you know, if you're familiar with like vinchristin or vinblastin, they all come from microbes. and um, so there, there's a lot of interest in being able to uh, produce and synthesize uh, these chemotherapeutics, uh, not using synthetic chemistry, which makes them really expensive, but using, you know, uh, engineered biochemistry uh, to produce them in a more sustainable way and low cost way. Um, you know, here's one example, um, Taxol uh, is, a, is a chemotherapeutic. Um, the, the yield for, for making taxol is, is via uh, yeah, synthetic chemistry is super, super small. It's like 0.0001% That is you start off with a kilogram of, of initial product of initial substrate, and you end up with, uh, you know, a couple of milligrams of taxol by the end of it. Uh, that's why taxol is so expensive. Um, but alternatively, uh, you can engineer an organism to produce uh the compounds that go into taxol synthesis uh getting very close to the end of uh, of the pathway and therefore you can substantially increase the yield of production for taxol so that you know you can drop the the price of taxol by by you know several you know hundredfold um and that's important because um it's not just about um i mean you know you know it's not just about um developing these new drugs It's also about making them uh, much more affordable for people um, as we, as we know that healthcare costs uh, are growing uh, and becoming predominant. And so any way that we can take a a drug uh, that is already on the market uh, and substantially reduce the cost of that drug uh, is a big win for the field. Um, And in particular uh, with synthetic biology and, and engineered biochemistry, if you start off with, a pathway inside of a, a microbe that makes a drug of interest, it's actually really easy to introduce new enzymes into that organism to then make modified versions of that drug, uh, and that those modifications can actually make even better drugs. So there, there's a lot of efforts in the field um, to start off with a, a drug of interest that is already on the market. But then with a couple of extra modifications and, and uh, introductions of new enzymes into that organism, Now you can create a completely new drug. Uh, It might not be a chemotherapeutic anymore. It could be uh, another, it could be an anti-aging drug Um, because a lot of these functional groups uh, are are shared uh, across different disease types. And so, you know, we're learning a lot more about how to, you know, sculpt and and design drugs uh, and work backwards to what enzymes need to be produced inside the organism to make them.
5: Yeah, for example, E. coli that they are just using the, for example, expressing the cytolysine that they are using for tumor detection or in some of the researchers, they are just injected to the tumor. And that was very beneficial. So I think that based upon your research, it would be much easier for, I mean, uh, track the activity inside the tumor because macro environment of the tumor is really challengeable.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting work on uh, using bacteria as like uh, homing missiles for tumors because they naturally accumulate inside of tumors. Um, I was involved in some really early work using uh, Salmonella um, to uh, kill tumors, um, which uh, has challenges because Salmonella, of course, is a pathogen. Uh, but it's not—it's definitely you know harmless compared to cancer, um, and. And more recently, uh, there's been a lot of uh, interesting work uh, not, not with cancer, but with using engineered phage to kill uh, to kill pathogens. Um, phage are viruses that kill bacteria. And so um, nowadays, uh, you know, people are greatly worried about antibiotic resistance and the onset of bacteria with multiple antibiotic resistances. And there's actually quite a few pathogens that that have been identified that are resistant to all of the common antibiotics that we normally would use. And so uh, people are now using engineered phage and using again using our algorithms to design these phage um, to um, enter these pathogens and express proteins like lysins or barnase, which destroys DNA, uh, to completely eradicate uh, these pathogens. Um, and so it's a new type of antimicrobial agent um, that can supplement uh, antibiotics um, and, and prevent antibiotic resistance from happening.
5: What about yeast and uh, fungi? Did you add any research around those as well?
1: Yep. So we, so my lab does work in those areas. Uh, we have a recent paper where we designed and characterized 25,000 different, uh, sorry, sorry, 1,700. Different uh, uh, non-repetitive yeast promoters that vary transcription rate by twenty-five thousand fold. So these, we we were able to design these sequences um, uh, to, you know, v- vary transcription factor binding and vary transcription rates by quite a lot. And we, through the design process, we made sure that one could actually utilize all of these different promoters at the same time without introducing repetitive DNA into yeast. Uh, Because if you're not aware, um, yeast uh, homologous recombination is super efficient. And so anytime anyone introduces a repetitive uh, region inside of the yeast genome, well, that repetitive region will trigger homologous recombination, which will then delete the system of interest. And so we we basically developed a solution to that problem uh, by creating a new algorithm that designs non-repetitive genetic parts, including these non-repetitive yeast promoters, so that uh, when you go to engineer the yeast, you, you're not ever introducing repetitive DNA.
5: Very interesting. And uh, what is the tree top of them? For example, the Saccharomyces cerevisiae or what?
1: I, it was Saccharomyces.
5: Yeah, I see. Thank you so much. Thank you for sharing your research with us. That was wonderful.
1: Thank you very much. Yeah, I agree.
3: Thank you so much uh, for coming. I don't know if anyone has um, any last questions or comments they would like to add. I think you did such a wonderful job. You moderated everything by yourself, basically. You're the perfect speaker. (laughs) And even answered the chat questions and so on. Yeah. If anyone has uh, last comments or, um, um, yeah, any last questions, um, please ask them. And then because we've been going now almost an hour and a half, so we have around <clears throat> uh, five to 10 minutes, maybe left Howard um, until we close the room. What do you think Howard?
1: Sure. If, if, uh, anyone has any other questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Uh, if not, um, I can, uh, we can end it there.
4: Um, may I say something? <laughs> it, Absolutely. I, okay, I really, really enjoyed this talk. So it's almost the thinking of you can have like a customised library of your, I mean, whatever research direction you're thinking of. And then my kind of, I don't know if it's a right way to ask, is that because when you said increase that particular, you know, uh, evaluate a certain percentage of gene expression versus the outcome because the, the Catherine was asking, can hey, you give some kind of hint at the organism level if I want to alternate like five proteins, five enzymes, what kind of outcome am I get? And then, right, yeah, It's kind of, I, I thought it's complicated, but I guess your system may be possible. Sounds like, thank you.
1: It's a great question so um, i like to call this uh the the curse of dimensionality so whenever you are engineering any system whether it's a organism or otherwise with lots of tunable knobs so let's say you have five proteins that all uh, are doing something you want but you might need to produce more or less of the protein to avoid um you know uh other you know, bad things from happening, for example, accumulation of some toxic intermediate. So you have five tunable knobs and you don't know where you should turn the knob to. Should you, you know, turn the knob for protein number three to two, three, four, five, six, and so on, right? So it's like you, it's an unknown. So we've developed a solution to that problem. Uh, so we can design a DNA sequences that are what are called degenerate dna sequences so for example if you go to like a idt or another oligo uh, you know a uh, synthesized uh, synthesis company you don't you, you know you can type in you know of course you can type in agct but you can also type in other letters like r or s or w and when you type in those degenerate letters you're basically asking the company to send you a tube that contains a mixture of primers or oligonucleotides. And so we use that technology and we actually design degenerate, you know, DNA uh, sequences, so mixtures that we can then introduce into the organism so that after we introduce those mixtures of DNA sequences into the organism, what we're really doing is systematically varying the gene expression levels Again, we're tuning those knobs, but we make sure that when we introduce those sequences, we tune the knob from a very low number, let's say one, to a very high number, and I'm going to say 11 from Spinal Tap, and and, and everything in between. So that with a small number of different DNA sequences, we make sure that when we do the experiments, we've completely tuned those knobs from one to 11 and everything in between for all those different proteins of interest. And so when you generate um, the the library of DNA sequences and when you introduce that library into the organism of interest, you of course get a library of cells and each one of those cells carries with it a different combination of your system of interest. And each each variant uh, will be expressing those proteins at slightly different levels. And then, of course, you have a high throughput assay or a biosensor that you can use then to, to do the screening and selection. Um, and, and, you know, it depends on the product of interest, uh, whether it's a metabolite or a protein or a or function. Um, but you are basically uh, searching and sorting uh, through that library to get the best ones. Uh, but importantly here, um, I call it the curse of dimensionality, right? If you were to do this randomly, Uh, and we've shown this, if you do it randomly, you basically will miss all the good stuff. That is when you uh, introduce random DNA sequences, you do not systematically explore the function space. But if you use our models and design the DNA sequence libraries, then you can systematically explore the function space and pull out the best ones uh, from the screening. Um, And we've shown this several times, uh, particularly with metabolic pathway engineering, where we are dealing with large numbers of enzymes that work together. And we show, uh, you know, with with some nice experiments that if you randomly mutagenize your DNA, you don't get great pathways, but if you systematically design your DNA sequences with their models, then you systematically search the expression space, which gives you the, the full function space, um, and then actually you can uh, use that data uh, to even understand how the system is working. You know for enzymes, you can actually uh, use the data to figure out the kinetics, the Kcat km uh, of the enzymes that you're introducing, uh, which is you know valuable for, for downstream optimization. Um, so again, with our models and algorithms, you can intelligently design and engineer these systems even as they get really complicated, with lots of moving parts because again we're the more predictions that you make, the more control you have over the outcome.
4: Right, right. So that that's definitely something to look forward to. That the, the people who use your models, people's research is coming out of that. Okay, thank you so much. No more questions from me.
2: Very welcome.
3: Yeah, thank you. I had to, um, you talked a little bit about the indicator. That you designed to um, to detect explosives. That's really interesting. Um, uh, so, which type of you know indicators um, are you working on, or or um, you know are being designed? Um, because you know in neuroscience, a high need <laughs> would be a mm-hmm. potassium, a really good potassium indicator. Um, like are people asking you, uh, probably from all kinds of fields, uh, to help design these type of indicators, or or is it not yet like a booming, uh, basically, um, yeah, part of your um, of your company work? Uh,
1: so we've uh, developed all sorts of different biosensors, including uh, what are called riboswitch sensors. Uh, and including a riboswitch sensor for the explosive TNT, as well as a DNT. And then we utilize that riboswitch sensor for TNT uh, in a bacillus subtilis organism to detect uh, explosives in the ground. Um, And uh, so, again, uh, the way that we engineered those riboswitch sensors is by leveraging our model predictions. And so here's an example uh, where we, you know, we started off developing and validating a model for translation, but then we figured out that we can apply that same model to design and engineer a what is called a riboswitch switch sensor just by using the model to figure out how to incorporate what is called an aptamer into the messenger RNA. And so our, our w- uh, our algorithm is called the ribosome Search calculator and it allows you to uh, take any RNA aptamer and figure out how to embed it uh, into a messenger RNA uh, ribosome-binding site and how to design the sequence before and after the aptamer so that when the aptamer binds to your uh, metabolite or protein of interest, uh, the, that binding event will cause the RNA to change its shape. And then that shape change will then activate the expression of your, of your output protein of interest. And so we, sh- we show, um, with many different aptamers, we we've done now over eight different aptamers, um, and these aptamers bind to small molecules, uh, like TNT. Uh, they also, uh, we, we've engineered riboswitch sensors, uh, using aptamers that bind to thyroxine, uh, as well as dopamine. So we have a dopamine sensor. So, if if you're interested in neuroscience, uh, and thyroxine is a is a hormone. Uh, We've also developed um, in work that we just submitted. We developed a rabbit switch uh, sensor uh, for C-reactive protein, uh, which is a biomarker, uh, as well as let me get this right. Another one. It was uh, interferon. so IL thirty two gamma, so that, that is uh, another biomarker uh, commonly associated with pro pro-inflammatory response, um, and, and so but again we, we have this workflow where we start off with an RNA aptamer that binds to these uh, ligands uh, that I uh, some which I mentioned, and then with our model predictions and design algorithm we can then generate uh, completely new uh, riboswitch sensors. That bind to these ligands of interest, change shape, and activate the expression of these uh, of an output protein, uh, and all of this takes place uh, either inside of a cell or in a cell-free assay. And the benefit here is that we, you know, it's all genetically encoded. It's like the the cell or or the gene expression machinery is producing the reagent for detection, and so we see this as a really low-cost sensor. Uh, it's the type of sensor that can actually be uh, dried on paper and rehydrated upon sample addition. Uh, so it's it's quite easy to use.
3: Wow, that's really impressive. I, I already Do you think we can build those someday into materials that we wear um to maybe detect pollution or you know, other kind of you know, with more and more pollution maybe. Yeah. Um,
1: I, I, you know, people have actually uh, uh, taken a, a biosensor and uh, in a cell-free assay, and they've put it onto a fabric, and then if you if a sample hits the fabric and hydrates it, it will you know activate the sensor and report on what's in the sample. So absolutely, um, but you know the, the you know there's. How about this, the best, ver- the best science fictiony, but completely possible application for all this is what I would like to say is a, is a health tricorder, right? So imagine going to CVS and buying a little box and in that box contain around a hundred different tests. And, you know, each box costs, you know, like 10 bucks. So every month. For, for 10 bucks, you can, you know, get, you can on your own, in the privacy of your own home, you can take uh, a sample, probably blood, um, and put it into the sample, you know, just like a COVID test, but instead of testing for COVID, you're testing for a hundred different metabolites and proteins and other ligands of interest. And so this is possible. And, um, And And so with this type of assay, uh, it's it's low cost uh, because uh, the box doesn't contain something expensive like a monoclonal antibody uh, or uh, something like a synthesized aptamer. The box only contains uh, a cell-free uh, assay, which is very cheaply produced, uh, and a you know uh, molecules of DNA uh, that contains the instructions for producing the biosensor, um, which again, the DNA is cheaply produced. And so just by, you know, that that assay, because it's just, uh, you know, lysate from bacteria with a couple of extra ingredients and a a DNA sensor or a DNA that contains the the instructions for the sensor, just by combining those two things, now you've lowered the cost of the assay to dollars uh, per test uh, as, you know, compared to, you know, if you you go and get a typical, you know, uh, Eliza done, it's, it's many more dollars than that. Um, so so th- this type of uh, assay format can be scaled up uh, for, for quite a few targets, um, and it can be combined together in a single format so that one sample can then be uh, uh, applied to multiple different biosensors at the same time in a multiplex fashion, uh, and, and you can actually make this possible.
3: That is, you know, amazing news. And um, also, especially when you say in the privacy of your home, because you can decide if you write down the results, if you put it in your phone or if you share it with some app, because lately, (laughs) um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about data privacy, your medical, what, what happens to all the data you put in your different phones or devices or watches um, uh, what happens with it do you want you know that people use it sell it whatever and that way since it's an analog way of doing it it's your decision how you you know how you store the data use the data and I think that's that's really great because you know they were I don't know if you read about the news that even some hospitals now are getting sued because they sold or used some some app. i forgot what it was on their portal that then other companies had access to all the patient data facebook so,
2: pixel the meta meta pixel code
3: right it was facebook had access to all the patient data from a few oh, hospitals boy. yeah so there's a lot of you know at least in people that work with data, um, a lot of, you know, fear about, you know, losing control over your data and with the abortion laws changed where yep. these apps that, that monitor fertility get some people in trouble. So
2: Absolutely. yeah,
3: that analog way is the way to go. So thank you so much for doing this amazing work. And um, it's really always you know, doing this rooms is also very non-altruistic because it gives me hope for the future to talk with people like you that use their talent and their knowledge for uh, for these type of projects. So thank you <laughs> to, for giving us hope and uh, for uh, designing a brighter future. So uh, we wish you all the best and all the funding. and everyone go to the company website and 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 talk about it so to support Howard which you probably don't even need but you know <laughs> Thank
1: you. Well, thank you very much uh, It's you know, you're all very wonderful great questions. I really enjoyed uh, you know talking about the work and uh, speaking with you all today
3: yeah, thank you and Whenever you would like to come back, please feel always invited uh, to uh, talk here again. And um, everyone enjoy the rest of your day. And uh, thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, We will, if you like discussions like this, follow the room, follow Howard. Um, And uh, we will have tomorrow Dr. Varun Venkat, Ramani talking about how gliovastoma manages to invade the brain. And on Friday, we'll have uh, Dr. Goodyear uh, talking about how he uses antibody dyes to uh, visualize heartbeats in vivo. Um, yeah, and we'll have. Um, more guest speakers the following week. Um, So thank you, Howard, again. This was such an amazing talk, such groundbreaking work. Um, We are honored that you came here today and we wish you all the best. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. Have a great day, everybody.
3: Clay, we'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.